How many of you guys, how many in here are campers? You like to go camping? We got some campers in here. I know some of you guys like to go camping a lot. We, we like to go camping. Don't get to do it nearly as often as we, we would like. Uh, kids, when you're camping, what's your favorite part about camping? I know it. Setting up the tent, right? No. No, Dad does that. What's your favorite part, Clayton? I saw you raise your hand. Ah, I knew that was going to be the answer. Sitting by campfire. Okay. Yeah. What is s'mores and marshmallows, which needs a fire, right? So that campfire is, that's the centerpiece of any good camping experience. You've got to have a good, well-done campfire that you can just enjoy. Well, I uh, went on a camping trip when I was a senior in high school. I tried to sh- put a picture of it up here, but it didn't work out. Um, we went way up in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains, uh, way up to a, a, a lake that was up there. And um, I lived in Ecuador, for those of you who are visiting and wondering what I was doing in the Andes Mountains. I lived there. Um, and so we went up camping, and uh, we were, I had this beautiful picture to show you, because right outside my tent every morning there was just this magnificent snow-capped volcano that we could just right there. And we were right at the foot of this volcano. It was just it was an amazing experience. But anyway, up there, that high elevation with such thin air and very, very dry air, um, the grass is very, very brown. I mean, it's alive, but it's brownish colored, and it can easily catch on fire. Well, we were camping with our campfire, and the, we're all seniors in high school, so a certain amount of our brain is still not functioning yet. And uh, we decided we were just going to bring our own food. We are going to eat what we caught in the lake. And then the only other food we brought was a box of macaroni and cheese, which I really don't understand. We, we didn't have milk or butter. We ended up using lake water to make it with. Um, but the other thing we brought were just some raw potatoes because we had this great idea that we were going to bake potatoes in the fire. Have you ever tried to bake a potato in a campfire? It, it doesn't work. <laughs> We stuck them in, we put them in foil and everything, stuck them in there, and like two hours later, they're still as hard as a rock. I mean, it's just not happening. We thought, well, surely they would, they would, and so then one of my buddies really has the brilliant idea. He goes, well, we need to take the foil off of them. And it's, hello? So he takes the foil off of his and throws it back in there, and of course, it catches on fire, and then he takes it out to try to, try to get the fire, and he, and it rolls off the campfire over into some of this grass, and sure enough, this grass catches on fire. And our tents are like right there. We're thinking, oh my goodness. And so we're there stomping on it, taking our, you know, what lake water we do have and dumping it on there. And now, fortunately, nothing happened. We were able to put out the fire. I mean, you know, five seniors in high school camping in the Andes Mountain, we could have done a lot of damage. But fortunately, actually, we wouldn't have because there weren't any houses nearby or anything. Uh, but, you know, on the news this year, you've probably seen that we've had war- more um, wildfires in the United States this year than any other time in history. And a lot of those have been started from just lightning strikes, and some of them have been arson, but at least a few of them that I've read about have just been from campfires that got out of control. And it didn't take a whole lot, maybe just a, a spark that just sort of flew away from the, the camp site and landed on some very, very dry grass, and then it just, poof, it just starts going from there. And Now, we were lucky. We were able to get our little fire out up there that day, but a lot of times when the conditions are just right, there's no stopping it. Once that spark hits that first flame, that first piece of grass, it just, it just goes. And these wildfires end up raging. 
Now, that's sort of a, a negative illustration of a wildfire raging and consuming. I want to turn it to a positive illustration here because what we have in this text we're going to look at today, and you can go ahead and turn there, John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 35. What we have in John chapter 1, verse 35, and by the way, if you need a Bible this morning, uh, there's Bibles that look like this that are sitting in the seat backs in front of you in the little tray area there. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take this. We want you to have the Word of God in your hand when you leave here. So you can use that Bible. Now, as you're turning to John chapter 35, what we have here in this text today are the first disciples of Jesus. The very first disciples of Jesus. This is that spark hitting the first blade of grass. The text we read today. Matter of fact, we see in this text today how more disciples were made. And so here we are. Now, supposedly, statistically, one, uh, one billion people on this planet are believers. Now, we know that not all people that are the one billion are true believers in Christ. Some of them are Christians in, in name only or believe they've been born into the church or whatever else. But there are many, many believers in this world. And you here are sitting here. You are part of the fire that continues to rage. The ongoing process of disciples being made. It's this cyclical process. Disciples making disciples making disciples. It's a wildfire that continues to rage. And will continue to cover the face of the earth until every tribe, every tongue, every person, every um, people group, I should say, has heard the gospel message. Verse 35 of John chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to do something we normally haven't done here, but part of it is because we used to do the scripture for the sermon differently than we're doing it now. I've incorporated it back into the message, which is the way I prefer to do it, really. So let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. This is the spoken word of God to us. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You may be seated. One of the great joys, and I mean that, it really is a joy. One of the great joys of being able to prepare a message each week for Harbin's is simply the joy of getting into the text and discovering that there are things here that, that I hadn't seen before or hadn't originally recognized. Um, matter of fact, this text here is, is one of those texts where there's more here than we can actually preach in one sitting. But it's so wonderful to get into a text like this, to chew on it, and to, and to see wonderful truths just sort of emerge from it. Sometimes we look at texts as just sort of like John's just giving us some facts, just sort of mundane facts to sort of fill the gaps between the spectacular stories. I mean, the next thing John will talk about is Jesus turning water into wine. So we have, we have these great stories of, of Jesus coming. He's the Lamb of God. And now we've got these disciples. And it's not just that John's just filling in some space here. The, there's something being taught through the Word of God in this great text. So because of that, there's a number of directions we could go today with this, this text. One of the things that really intrigued me was the different titles for Jesus that you see in the specific text we read today, but also in the whole um, chapter of, of John chapter 1. Now let me remind you real quick, because we do have some visitors, thank the Lord, today. It's good to see you if you're visiting with us. But we are going through a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We are walking through the life of Christ uh, chronologically, we're, gonna, we're bouncing back and forth between the Gospels, doing a harmony of the Gospels. Why? So that we can see Jesus better and so that we can worship him better. So as I, as I looked at this text and we see all these titles for Jesus, he's called Rabbi, he's called Messiah. They refer to him as the one uh, of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the King of Israel. If you go back in John, he's called the Word. And so... One of the things that just intrigued me would be to do a study on the titles that are used of Jesus just in John chapter 1. So I may do that next time I preach. I don't know. I may come back and do that. Um, or you could zero in on the very last verse of this text. The most intriguing verse of this whole passage is verse 51. This whole thing about angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. What's that all about? Well, the whole sermon could be spent there if we wanted to. Or you could zero in on evangelism. This is a great text on evangelism. You see the pattern of how God brings people in in this text. Okay, so it starts off, John sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus. And then he speaks about Jesus. People hear about this Jesus. And they follow Jesus. And when they see him more fully, they begin to speak about Jesus. And other people hear and follow Jesus. And we see this, this cycle of evangelism that, that, that should be happening in the body. The fire, as I said earlier, is raging on. Now we're going to touch on some of that here today because one of the things I really want to emphasize here at Harvest is that we want to be a church that is making, maturing, and mobilizing disciples. Making, maturing, and mobilizing disciples. Now we also see three different sort of methods of, of the way God brings people in. Three methods of evangelism, if you, if you will, in this text. We see the public proclamation of the word by John the Baptist. And then we see private witnessing. We see Andrew going to Peter, privately telling him about, we found the Messiah. We see, we see Philip speaking to Nathaniel. And then the way Philip came to the Lord was just that Jesus directly spoke to him and said, follow me. 
So, you know, we, some people are saved from hearing the word preached, whether it be in a setting like this or maybe out on the street and hearing a public proclamation of the word. Some people are reached by simply their friends and their family coming to them and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Others, they may be on their, their last straw and they're sitting in a hotel room and they open up a drawer and there's a Gideon's Bible there and they open up and God saves them miraculously without the means of another person. And so we see, all, we see three different forms of sort of evangelistic uh, means that God uses here in this text. We could hang out there and dig into that some more if we wanted to. But because this is a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, I want us to focus on what our Lord is doing in this passage as he makes disciples. So I have three points that I want to give us today as we walk through the text. And the first one is simply this. One, Jesus draws his disciples through the word of God. Jesus draws his disciples to himself. That's what I mean by that. He draws his disciples through the word of God. This section about Jesus' very first disciples flows directly out of John the Baptist's ministry. Verse 35 says that John was standing there with two of his disciples. He looked up, he saw Jesus as Jesus walked by. And what does he say? That, that passage we focused on last week. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard this and they followed. They heard and they followed. Now this, is, this was John's sole purpose of his ministry. Was to point people to and prepare people for Jesus. Even if it meant he lost some disciples. I love John's humility and boldness. Sometimes we think those two things can't go together. They can. You can be a bold person for Christ and a bold one who shares your faith boldly and still be tremendously humble. And we see great humility with John the Baptist. It's not about him. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. And it begins right here. As two of his own disciples say, okay, John, we're, we're following the lamb. Thanks for pointing him out to us. We're following the lamb. That was the beauty of John the Baptist's wonderful ministry. He was to point to Jesus and he did it very well. Now, it was John's proclamation though, his proclaiming of who Jesus was that was the means that God used to draw the very first disciples. It says in verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, to drive home this point, John says the exact same thing again in verse 40. It says, when he's speaking of one of the two, he says one of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus. So John is repeating the pattern here. I want you to know how this happened, people. When you see a repetition in Scripture like that, it's there for a reason. John is saying, I want you to know why these people are following Jesus. They heard John preach about Jesus, and then they followed. Now, just a side note here. We know that one of the two disciples was Andrew. Most scholars believe, and I would agree, that the other one is the Apostle John, the author of this book that we're reading. Now, there's a clear pattern that emerges here in this text. Proclamation, hearing, and then following. Proclamation, hearing, and then following. That's the way God has designed it to work. That's the way the fire rages on. Proclamation, hearing, and then following. People must hear the gospel. They must hear about Jesus. They must hear God's word. If they do not, they will not follow Jesus. They may be following something, but it will not be Jesus. Later, Jesus himself would say in uh, John chapter 10, My sheep 
hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those who belong to Christ, when they hear it, they follow. Paul would later explain it to the Romans in this way, in a very well-known verse. And we read, that, we read the Isaiah passage that this was based on. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is how disciples are made. For John and Andrew, it was the word spoken by John the Baptist to them about Jesus. For Peter, okay, and later for Nathaniel, it was the word spoken to them in private from Andrew and from Philip about Jesus. And for Philip, it was the direct word from Jesus about Jesus. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word works that way. It has this regenerative power. It makes dead hearts alive. It's how God created the universe. And he spoke it into existence. That's how he makes believers and followers, disciples. He speaks them into existence with his word. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this about all disciples. Well, he's praying about for his, his apostles, first of all, his disciples. And then he's also praying for the church. And he says this, I do not ask only for these, for the, for the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for you. If you're a believer, you believed in him, according to this text, through the apostolic word. It's this right here. This is the apostolic word that you that created new life in you, that God used by his spirit to create new life in you. And it's by through that that you became a believer. So church, we must preach the word. We must share the word. This book that we, we preach from and that we read from and that we study, it's not just an apparatus for our Sunday ritual. It's living it's active. It contains the fullness of the gospel, which is able to save. This book is life. It's the word of God. It's God's words of life. Disciples are brought to Christ through the preached word. His word is the means God uses to save men, bring them in, convert them, sanctify them. Not only are we converted through the, the, the word by the Spirit being be penetrating into our heart, but we are sanctified that way as well. So that's one of the reasons I said, if you don't have one of these books, take it home. I don't care what situation we're in as a church financially, we'll get more of these. Take this home with you if you don't have a Bible. Saturate yourself with the Word. Give out Bibles. How many of you have extra Bibles at home? Give a Bible away. Give out some tracts that have Scripture in them. The best tracts are tracts that just have lots of Bible in them. Share your testimony. But let your testimony be saturated with the Word. God will use His Word to draw. Your personal testimony, it may be amazing. I don't know. There's some of you out there that may have at one time been, been a, 
a hitman in the mob. I don't know. And God saved you out of that. You have some fantastic testimony. Gabe, you just smiled. Do I, are you telling me something? <clears throat> Sorry, Gabe. I don't know what your story is. It may be spectacular, but your spectacular story won't save a soul. It's God's Word. So tell your story. I want to know how God has transformed you. People will need to hear that. They need to hear your experience, but they need to hear it saturated with the Word of God. It needs to be grounded in this book. Now, I not only want us to see this morning that Jesus draws his disciples through the word of God. I also want us to see that Jesus gives spiritual sight to his disciples. Let us, let us begin to look now at this interesting conversation Jesus has with John and Andrew as they begin to follow him. Says the, so they're following him and Jesus turns and he sees them following and he says to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And then he says, Come and you will see. So their response when Jesus turns around and says, What are you seeking? is, Where are you staying? Now, am I the only one that thinks that's just kind of a weird reaction? I mean, it kind of reminds me of um, when I was in college and I was never really, you know, kind of that smooth of a guy. And, you know, some attractive young lady says something to you, you don't know what to say back, and you say something stupid, and you walk away going, oh, I'm such an idiot, you know? So I can imagine John and Andrew go, you know, Andrew says, well, where are you staying, Rabbi? And John's going, you're asking him his address? I, I don't know. I think there's more to it than that, though. I, I do think that really what they, what they want to see, though, what they want to know is, how can we learn more about you? Where, where are you abiding? Can we, can we hang out with you for a while? But I also think they didn't know exactly what they were seeking. Not fully. Because they don't answer the question directly. I, I don't think they really even know yet. <laughs> we know you're the Lamb of God. John has said that we're, we're following you. Lambs forgive sin. We, we don't understand what it all means, but we want to follow you. We're going to step out here in faith and follow you. But I don't think they quite know what it is they're seeking. You see, Jesus' question is a penetrating question. He isn't just turning around and saying, what do you want? Or, can I help you with something? That's not what he's doing. When he says, what are you seeking? He's penetrating their heart with a deeper question. He wants to know what they're after. What their focus is. He wants to know if they are really, truly seeking the Messiah. And so they've left the familiar. They've left John the Baptist. They're going to stay with Jesus probably overnight if you look at the text here. But Jesus says to them, come and you will see. Now Jesus isn't just talking about where he's physically staying, his address if you will. Okay, There's a fuller meaning to Jesus' words here. There's a deeper meaning. We regularly see that in all the Gospels, but especially in this Gospel. That Jesus says things that have multi-leveled meanings. So Nicodemus he says, well, what must I do you know, to, to, to be a part of the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, what? You mean, how am I supposed to do that? I'm an old man in my mother's womb. I mean, how is that supposed to work? 
You see, over and over again, Jesus says things that have a totally different meaning than what the person is actually grasping. Or the woman at the well. Jesus says he's going to give her living water. She wants to know, where, where can she draw this living water? She's got her buckets ready to go. Where, where is this living water? Or the feeding of the 5,000. After Jesus had given them this miraculous bread, they come back, they want more food. They want to follow him for the bread. And he says, you need to feast on me. And that eat my flesh and drink my blood, that freaked enough of them out that he had a very small group of people left after that sermon. You see, Jesus is always speaking this way. So when he says, come and you will see, I think he means more than just, um, you come, come see the place I'm staying. It's pretty nice. It's got a nice little loft, a kitchen, and you come see. That's not what he's saying. He says, come, and I'm going to give you spiritual sight. I'm going to open your eyes to see things that you could never imagine. And they are about to see. Come to me and I will open your eyes to see spiritual realities. And they do because after this, after they stay with Jesus just a little while, Andrew goes running out. And the text here seems to imply that he tells a lot of people about Jesus. But the first one he goes to is his brother Simon and says, We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. His eyes have been opened. We have we found him. We have found the Messiah. They may not have known exactly what they were seeking, but after an evening with Jesus, they found what they were seeking. And now they knew what they had found. Seek and you will find. Jesus draws, Jesus opens eyes, eyes see and savor, and then mouths have to proclaim. Once we've seen and savored Jesus, we have to speak about it. Whether it be in worship, which is why we're doing this series, or whether it be in evangelism. See and savor and speak. So they found the Messiah, or perhaps as they will begin to discover as the longer they spend with Jesus, he found them. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are the lost sheep. We are the wandering ones. He's the good shepherd, finding, drawing, saving. To Jesus be all the glory. I think this says something about us today as as followers of Jesus Christ. I believe that you can come to Christ and not have a full grasp of theology and doctrine in a very simple way, not even fully know who it is you're following yet. Sufficient enough to know that He is the, for, the one and only payment for your sin. And He is the Lamb who, who by His blood and only by His blood can you be forgiven of sin and be given righteousness? But, but I believe children can be saved without having to know all the details of the atonement or superlapsarianism. Anybody know what that is? Some of you do. You don't have to have a full grasp of doctrine in order to be a follower of Christ. But what should be happening is daily you're growing in your knowledge and understanding of Christ. And it's becoming bigger and more real and more amazing. You are seeing and savoring Christ. And therefore your life becomes more and more given over to worship. And given over to a desire to let others know about Jesus. So when they came and they saw where he was staying. It says they stayed with him. And then um, Andrew goes to Simon Peter and says... We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. By the way, every reference we have of Andrew in the Gospels 
Is he bringing someone to Jesus? It's a great picture of his personality. You see, this is disciple making. Let me tell you what's happened to me. Let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you who I have come to know. Let me tell you about Jesus, the Messiah. Let me tell you about the one that God spoke of in his word. When Philip does it, Philip does the same thing when he goes to Nathaniel. Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Friends, you've not just found a community or a purpose in life or a way to feel better about yourself. If and only if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you have found the one, the one that the whole Bible speaks of, the one all of history was created for, the only one, the word worth sharing. I've shared this story, I think, with some of you but recently I was on a, well, it was a few months ago, on a visit for my chaplaincy. And it was talking to a man who claimed to be a believer all his life. But I could tell from some of the things he was saying that his faith wasn't real. It certainly wasn't producing any fruit. And so I just began to share the gospel with him. And I just started really in Genesis. And I told him that the Bible's just one story, buddy. It's just all one story. Because he was breaking it up, talking about how, well, the God of the Old Testament, he couldn't believe in the God of the Old Testament, but he could believe in the God of the New Testament, different things. So I just took him through the one story of Jesus and tried to show him how it all pointed to Jesus. And we spent about an hour talking. And at the end of this, he said, you know, I grew up all my life in church. I've never heard that. Never once have I heard that all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And I was saddened because it tells me that The Jesus that many people believe in in the church isn't, well, it may not be the true Jesus. And certainly the church isn't seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ like they should from the word of God. But we begin to see a transformation in these men. Here are two disciples who, first of all, didn't have any clue as to how to answer this question, what are you seeking? And now they're out telling others about Jesus. So the third thing I want us to notice is that Jesus transforms his disciples into new creations. He transforms his disciples into new creatures or creations. First, he transforms them with a new purpose in life and as a new person, really. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus, just talking about Simon. So Andrew brings him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Now, can you imagine? It's pretty audacious for someone to walk up. First time you met someone, hey, I'm changing your name right now. I mean, I didn't walk up to any of you guys when I first met you and, you know, say, you know, hey, Gabe, you're Bobby now. Okay. Hey, you know, Elias, your name is going to be Patrick. All right. No. Uh, what? It would be foolish and audacious of me to come out and say that, presumptuous of me to be able to come and say that I can change your name. But Peter walks up, first words Jesus has for him, his name wasn't Peter at that point. Simon walks up, first words Jesus has for him is, "Uh, you're not Simon, you're Peter. What does that name change mean? What What are we meaning here with a name change? First of all, it demonstrates the authority of the namer over the one being named. I mean, in the Old Testament, Adam names the animals. Why? That is symbolic. It's not just it needed to happen and God needed someone to do the job for him. 
Oh, all these animals have got to be named. Adam, go do that. It's a symbol of authority. Adam has authority. He's been given dominion over all the creation. That's why he names the animals. And so in the Old Testament, also we see stories of invading armies. When they would conquer a a land and they would put the king, sometimes they would keep the same king in the place there. They would rule the country, but they would keep the king there. But oftentimes they would rename the king. Why? To demonstrate that this guy is now under our authority. Or the captives. Remember the captives that were taken to, to Babylon? Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These guys, their names were changed. They, 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 Daniel's name was changed so that it would demonstrate that he was now under the authority of someone else. And so that's part of what's happening here. Christ is demonstrating his raw sovereignty over Peter. I'm changing your name, period. And he has the same sovereign authority over us. When he brings disciples in, he changes them. He has the authority to. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, another book written by the same apostle, Apostle John. We read this. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Every one of you guys have a new name if you're a believer in Christ. You have a new name because Christ has made you new. John, by showing us that Peter is being renamed, he also is showing us that Peter is a new person. Names are huge in Scripture, especially the Old Testament. The name is the reflection of one's character. So when you study the names of God, you're studying the character of God. And sometimes we see in the Old Testament God changing a person's name. Okay, there's Abram, who gets changed to Abraham, Sarai to to Sarah, and of course we have Jacob, Jacob's name being changed to Israel. God puts him on a new course with a new purpose and a new identity. Peter may not understand it now, but Jesus is transforming him for the rest of his life. He's transforming him into a rock. Now, Peter isn't there immediately. We'll see over and over again in the Gospels that Peter oftentimes is more like quicksand than a rock. He wavers and he fails. But sometimes we get glimpses of the rock that Peter is meant to be. Like in, when he professes that, when, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's the first one to speak up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's rock-like. And then a few verses later, when Jesus begins to talk about his own crucifixion, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. That's quicksand-like. That's Peter. He wasn't there yet, but he's being made into the person that God wants him to be. And that's the process with all true disciples. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. Believer, you are a new man in Christ. And you are in the process of becoming a new man in Christ. Let me say that again. You are a new man in Christ, but you are also in the process of becoming a new man in Christ. And he also doesn't obliterate your personality, your taste, your quirks, the things that make you you. No, instead he's making you into the you you were meant to be. United to Christ, you are being made into the likeness of Christ. And he is taking all that uniqueness that makes you who you are and perfecting it so that it can all point to him. The world says, be your own man. Just be who you are. I was born this way. My friends, if you are not in Christ, 
you can't be who you are. Because you were created to glorify God. And you can only become that. God glorifying person you were meant to be when you're united to Christ. Jesus knows you better than you do, by the way. He sees the deepest recesses of your heart. He chose you. He's transforming you. Look at what happens with Nathaniel. Philip has told him of the Messiah. Okay? He says that the Messiah is one named Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Now we've heard that before, haven't we? Come and see. You see, disciples begin to act like Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. So he invites him to come and see. And Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him and says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Jesus knows our hearts, our thoughts, and our internal reality. Jesus' statement hits Nathanael in the heart. Why? And this is a bit of a confusing text here. So hang with me as I try to walk through it. It seems to be that, in my mind, that perhaps Nathaniel had been meditating on God's word when Philip found him. Because, I say this because in a lot of the rabbinic literature of the time, when people would meditate on God's word, they would sit under a fig tree. And so us being separated from that century makes it a little bit harder to understand perhaps what, what, what John's trying to communicate here. But I believe what he's trying to say is that Nathaniel is over here. He's sitting down. He's under the fig tree. He's meditating upon the word of God. Perhaps he was even meditating on Genesis 28. Genesis 28 is the story of Jacob seeing a ladder from heaven on which angels ascend and descend. And we're going to talk more about that here in a second. But for right now, let's just acknowledge that Jesus sees into Nathaniel's heart. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What does he mean by this? After all, Nathaniel just showed tremendous prejudice. And now Jesus looks at him and says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, perhaps he's commending Nathaniel's honesty. And when Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's not being a hypocrite like a lot of people are. He's not being duplicitous. He's just speaking his mind. Maybe that's what Jesus means. There's some who think that. Maybe he's referring to Nathaniel being a true Israelite in the sense of one who is truly circumcised of the heart. We know that there were many Israelites, but there weren't many true Israelites who were circumcised of the heart in Israel at the time. There were some. There was always a remnant. Maybe that's what he refers to. But I think the key here is, to, is the word deceit. Or guile, if you have an older translation. Deceit means no duplicity. It means transparency. Or no deceit means transparency. No duplicity. I mentioned earlier that he may have been meditating on Genesis 28. Why do I say that? Because the very last verse of this passage is a reference to Genesis 28. So let me just read that passage real quick. Genesis 28, I'm going to start in verse 11. And this is, this is Jacob after he has deceived his brother, running from his brother. And we read in verse 11 of Genesis 28, He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in, it, in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What is this? This is the restating of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. House of God means Bethel. Or Bethel means house of God. And so it was, that place was called that from that point forward. Now in today's text, in verse 51, Jesus is obviously saying that that story right there in Genesis 28 points to him, to Jesus. Basically, verse 51 is the fleshing out of verse 45. Verse 45 says that all the, everything Moses wrote and all the prophets points to Jesus. Jesus demonstrates that in verse 51. Well, if you know the story of Jacob, you know that Jacob was a what? He was a deceiver. He was a deceiver. His name meant deceive. It meant to grab the heel or to supplant or to undermine. He was a deceiver. But God makes a covenant with a deceiver. Because God doesn't save us based upon our righteousness, but based upon his sovereign choice. So he makes a covenant with a deceiver. And then later in Genesis 32, when Jacob is wrestling with God, what does God do? God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And Israel means one who prevails with God. From Jacob to Israel. Now most commentators believe, and I believe, that this was the moment, Genesis 32, When Jacob actually becomes a believer. That he is saved. This was his conversion. So now look at the phrase again that Jesus says. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. An Israel in whom there is no Jacob. I think he's referring right back to this text. He is saying the same thing he said about Peter. I'm doing a transforming work in you. Because this guy doesn't say all of a sudden, you know, you're right. I never, I don't deceive anybody. I'm, I'm a great guy. I think actually he begins to feel guilty. He knows he's just shown tremendous prejudice just a verse earlier. Now Jesus comes up and says, behold an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Jesus has peered into his heart. He's exposed the very thing that, that Nathaniel was sitting there meditating upon. Nathaniel has actually demonstrated his own hypocrisy in the way he reacted about this Nazarene. And all he can say is, how how do you know me like that? How, How do you know me? Jesus knows our hearts, our thoughts, our internal reality, but he also knows our actions and our external situations. So Jesus just tells him, well, before Philip called you, I saw you. You were under the fig tree. Well, that's enough for Nathaniel. I mean, he explodes into praise after that. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But a change of name isn't the only thing that Jesus is doing in these passages. A change of, of, of persons and purposes in life. He's also transforming our perspective. And so Jesus takes Nathaniel and the rest of the disciples that are with him to that text. You see, when people come 
to Christ, become new in Christ, Christ begins to show them things they never could have seen on their own. They never could have imagined on their own before. So Jesus here, referring to Genesis 28, answers him and says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. And when he says truly, truly, that's big time. It means amen, amen. Let it be, let it be. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jacob had called this place Bethel, house of God, dwelling place of God. Jesus says, I am Bethel, God incarnate. Jacob had said this place was the gateway to heaven. Jesus says, no, I am the gateway to heaven. He says just as much in John 10, 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved. Jacob saw God communicating with man through angels descending and ascending. And now Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am the means by which man now hear the final word of God. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. This is the Jesus that we are to proclaim. With this new perspective on life and this new purpose and this new personhood, these disciples can't stay quiet. And the fire begins to rage. So my last point is simply this. And it's really just kind of drawing it from the whole overall theme of the text. Is that Jesus sends his disciples to make more disciples. We don't have to stay on this point long. We've already seen it in the text. Matter of fact, this is how we're going to conclude this morning. You see, if and only if you are a new creation, then you have a new mission. Friends, if you are in Christ, then 2 Corinthians 5.17 applies to you. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Disciples experience transformation. Let me say further, disciples experience radical transformation. And then you are a new person with a new perspective. The glorious thing about that passage about being made a new creation is it continues. Verse 18 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are an ambassador of Christ with a message from the king. In whatever outpost God has placed you, the job you're at, the ministry that you're a part of, you are an ambassador of Christ Jesus. And just as we saw this week, a real, an ambassador of our nation was killed. So too, you are being sent out into hostile territory. And Jesus said, they will persecute you. And he says, some of you, they will kill. So I know you're scared. When you're sitting there in the workplace, you know that friend who you have not talked to about Jesus for three years now needs to hear the gospel. Just remember, 
You are a new creation in Christ. His Spirit dwells within you. He'll give you the words to say, just be the ambassador He's called you to be. I had to deal with it this week. I have a neighbor who I've just really avoided. And I prayed, convicted, as I read some of this and thought some of this. Okay, Lord, just next time you give me an opportunity, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him about Jesus. So, so long as you make it happen, I'll do it, right? Wouldn't you know that day I'm going out to get the mail, and for whatever reason, hey there, neighbor! So I go over and talk to Charlie, and I found out that he's just been through a terrible tragedy. And his father had passed away in a terrible car accident just a week earlier. And so God opened the door to begin to talk about spiritual realities. And Charlie, who was a deacon at his church at one point but doesn't go to church now, could not articulate the gospel for me, which made me sad in and of itself. And so I just shared the gospel with him. Charlie didn't break down in tears and weeping and crying. on He just listened politely and then had to go. But I've lived in the house for seven years. And I haven't been the ambassador I needed to be in my outpost there. And so it's a challenge for all of us. If we have been transformed, then you've been given a mission. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And you are imploring people to be reconciled to God. So bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'll close with that. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to pray. But let me put out that appeal to you here this morning. If you are not a believer. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your hope in Jesus Christ alone. You have embraced religion perhaps. You have trusted that you are a Christian because you were born into a Christian home perhaps. But you have never fallen on your face before Christ repented of your sin. And and begged him to do a new work in you. To make you a new creation. You've been seeking something, but you don't know what. And today you've heard that the Messiah has come. Let me implore you, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we pray now, I pray that you take this response time as we sing this amazing old hymn and we think of these deep words that you would be at work within our hearts, drawing us to yourself. And that there may be many in here who are believers, but they're like me. They've become stale in their evangelistic zeal. And they have forgotten that they're to be ambassadors. And they've forgotten that it's a war zone out there. And some of us are going to be wounded. Lord, that you'd stir us up with a new zeal to be messengers taking this wildfire to another place that needs to hear it, to another person that needs to have their heart set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And Father, if there be any in here who are unbelieving, who've never placed their faith in Christ, may they take a moment today to speak to someone about that, whether it be me or another member of the church, and may they hear the gospel and believe it. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great promise. We pray all this and we respond now in song and bring of our offerings and our prayer requests. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.